Well, good morning. It is Father's Day. It is nice to have you here this morning with us. There's a story of a young lad who was wanting to go to the circus. He'd heard about the circus, heard how good the circus was. And you know, whenever you're young, this is way back in the 1800s, this story was written. Very young boy. Heard about it, envisioned it, dreamed about it. No TV to give him those kind of pictures, but you know, you can get the pictures in your mind. He told his dad, he said, Dad, I really want to go to the circus. But it was always, they were in a rural town, well, well far away from any city, and it never really came near them. One day when he was 12 years old, he was walking in town, and he saw the posters up on the boards, and it said, the circus is coming. He gave the date. He came on home, and he told his dad, Dad, the circus is coming. I really want to go. Well, they didn't have a whole lot of money, very little money. Certainly not a whole lot of extra money to go to circuses. But the dad said, look, if you get all your chores done for the week, have everything done by Saturday, I will see to it that you have the money to go to the circus. So Saturday came, the circus day. And the dad reached into his overhauls and he pulled out a dollar bill. And he gave it to the young lad. It's the most amount of money he had ever seen his entire life. An entire dollar. He walked on down to where the circus was, was coming, and the circus was coming in that morning. You know how the circus would come in to come in with a parade? And they paraded all the animals. They paraded all the, all the elephants. They paraded all the acrobats. They paraded all the different things that were there. And the last thing they came in in the parade were the clowns. The boy was so excited. He saw all the animals. He saw all the acrobats. He saw all the people in the parade. And when he saw the clowns, he went up to one of the clowns and he gave the clown his dollar. And he went home. He was excited. He had seen the circus. But all he really saw was the parade. He didn't know what the circus was. He thought he had seen it. God has called us to a life that for many Christians, all we ever see is the parade. But God has called us to the big event. He wants us to come in the tent. He wants us to see all the things around the three rings. All the acrobats. All the tricks that the animals do. He wants us to enjoy the Christian life. And not just see the parade. Many Christians have lived their Christian lives from beginning to end and have never experienced anything more than the Christian life being paraded in front of them. And one of the main reasons is pride has gotten in and we don't even know it's there. It's kept us from getting in. It's kept us from seeing what is actually going on in the Christian life. And we're like the little boy. We think the parade is it. We think that's exciting. It's more than we've ever seen. But God wants us to have a whole lot more. Last couple of weeks, we've looked at some of the actions of pride. That pride, as we said, has a smell. Faith has a smell. 
God can pick out faith. But pride has a smell as well. You get the example of the dead fish before? You can tell when a dead fish is around. You can tell when laundry is dirty by its smell. You can tell when a diaper needs to be changed by its smell. But if we get around pride for so long, we get so used to the smell, we don't know. If you lived out in rural areas and they uh, manure the fields, you're so used to it, you don't even smell it anymore. But if you're driving through and you haven't been out there, oh man, (laughs) oh, how do people live in this? And the people that are living there, what, what, what's going on? We got to get, we got to get used to the sweet essence of God in his life. We looked at some of the actions of pride that one of the actions was, uh, we blame others. People in pride blame others. They don't blame themselves. Everything for a person in pride is someone else's fault. It's not their own. We use the example of the car. You want your car to get fixed. What do you got to find out? What is to blame? What is to blame in the car not working? Because you can fix all kinds of things in a car. It's got a lot of parts in it. But if you don't fix the right thing, nothing changes. When God talks about us repenting, his interest is find out what is to blame and change it. Find out what is to blame. Repentance without realizing what's at fault is useless. Well, God, I'm sure it's my fault. I'll just repent. Well, why is it your fault? What is it that you did? That's why we have confession before God. That's why God wants us to confess. Be careful of the doctrine that is making its way around. The Christians don't have to confess. There are many ministers, well-known ministers, that are teaching this. You don't have to confess as a Christian. You're born again. Everything's covered. What that does is paving the way for you to enter into a life of pride and never fixing what's wrong. And your Christian life will never get better. Be careful. Sounds good. Sounds sweet. Sounds pleasant. But it's not right. Don't buy into it. We blame others, not ourselves. There's no lasting change there. We judge others, not ourselves. People in pride are constantly judging other people. They're telling other people what other people are doing wrong. Well, so-and-so, they ought to be doing this, and -and so-and-so ought to be doing this, and that guy over there, he ought to be doing this, and my boss ought to be doing this, and the people down at the grocery store ought to be doing this, and the the people in government, they ought to be doing this, and everything, we're always judging other people, constantly judging. We don't judge ourselves. People in pride judge others, but not themselves. What's the Word of God tell us to do? Judge ourselves. It does also tell us to judge other people, but it tells us to judge other people when we are in a position to do something about it. You need to be in a position to be able to affect change in that person's life. We look to get angry. It's not wrong to get angry. It's okay to get angry, but you can get angry and sin. If the Word of God says get angry and do not sin, then you can get angry and sin. So there's a right way to get angry and there's a wrong way to get angry. And we looked at that because prideful people get angry at others. They don't get angry at themselves. Same thing is also true, though. People who are in false humility, they are always angry at themselves and never angry at anyone else. They're always judging themselves and never judging anyone else. Everything's always my fault. Well, what if it's not your fault? Then you're fixing something that doesn't necessarily have to be fixed. 
We've got to be walking the way that God tells us, which is humble. It's right down the middle of the road. Last week, we looked about uh, prideful people edify themselves and not others. They edify themselves and not, not others. The Word of God tells us to edify the people that are around us, build them up. We looked at Elijah for that, how Elijah got down and God took him away out in the wilderness, way out far, long trip, and takes him to a cave. And then he, he needed to hear God. And God said, what are you doing here, Elijah? He had the whole rehearsed speech. He gave it a couple of different times. I've been very zealous for the Lord. They're killing everybody. I'm the only one who's left for you. I'm still on your team and you got a good guy here. You ought to take better care of me. That's a summary, but <laughs> that's basically what he's saying. He's telling God, you need to be taking good care of me. I am, a, I am an ace and um, I don't feel real cared for right now. And God says, hey, tell you what, get up. I'm going to have you go back and anoint three people. One of them is your replacement. And he says, and just by the way, I got 7,000 people ready right now to stand in your place. Right now, I got 7,000. You are not the only one. Don't try and uh, use that to God. Don't, don't try and you know, sell yourself to God. Man, I am unique. I am good. Edify yourselves. Today, we're going to be looking at the other. Well, we, we gave you this too for last week. The three steps that God used for Elijah to edify him. and get, See, edification isn't always about making you feel good. Edification is about getting you built up, getting you ready. And so we saw with God that he first off got him to get up, get back, and get busy. <laughs> get up. Get up from where you are. Stop being down. Get back to what you were doing and get busy at it. Because, see, discouragement takes you out of doing what you were called to do. You get discouraged. Have you ever had a discouraged arm? Doesn't want to function like it's supposed to anymore. Does that affect the whole body? You have a discouraged leg. It doesn't want to do what it's supposed to do. It wants to just lay around and not do anything. Yeah, that's, uh, that's not good. What you needed to do is you need that part of your body to get up, get back to doing what you're doing, because there is nothing better than a leg at being a leg. Right? There's nothing better than a foot at being a foot. There's nothing better than a hand at being a hand. There's nothing better than an eye at being an eye. And there's nothing better than you doing what God called you to do. But you've got to do what you're called to do, and not what someone else is called to do, or not feel like it's no good. Today we're going to look at the, the next one we gave you, which was prideful people amplify themselves, not others. They amplify themselves. And this, I mean, this is an obvious one. How many of y'all know one of the most obvious thing about prideful people is they're always talking highly about what they do. They're always the best at it. I am the best this. I am the best that. There's no one better. Everyone else is junk. No one else is any good. If you're a teacher, I'm the best teacher. Every other teacher around here is garbage. They're a prideful teacher. No one else is any good. I heard that teacher. They're no good. If you're an author, every other author stinks. Right? If you're on Facebook, I, I read some of Susan's things that she talks about other authors. You know, she talks very highly of other authors. That's good. That's, that's, a, that's a good thing to do. Because we've got to be careful. You know, we, we, I'm, I'm a pastor. I got to make sure, you know, all the pastors stink. There's no other good ones. <laughs> that's, that's not good. That's not a good place to be. 
You can be a musician. If you get to be a musician, what happens to other musicians? Oh, they all, they all stink. There's no, no good ones but me. Yeah, that's not good. If you're a composer, you're a person who writes music, oh, those other songs, they're all junk. Only good ones are the ones I write. So that's where pride will take you. You may not be all the way over there yet to where everyone is, you know, just a handful. But um, be careful. Because prideful people, we like to amplify what we're about, what we've done. This is not the, the good thing to do. Prideful people are always looking at and amplifying to other people what they have done. Look at what I've done. Look at these things. Look at these things that I have accomplished. Look at all the things that they've accomplished. They're talking about what God has done for them. Prideful people will talk about what God has done for them as if God is treating them as something special. Look what God has done for me. Look what God has done through me. They're prideful people. They're amplifying themselves. They're not amplifying God. They're amplifying themselves. Take a look at the Word of God, what it has to say about this. This is the goal. In Isaiah 42, in verse 8, I am the Lord that is my name and my glory I will not give to another, nor my praise to carved images. Be careful. God does not share his glory. If the glory belongs to God, God wants it. he, He wants it. You know, we can we can re- relate to that, right? We have we have things that are ours. How many of you have a car that is yours? If you loan it out to someone else and that person trashes it on the inside, what do you think? It's my car. Why'd you do that to my car? If you have a phone and you loan it to somebody and they throw it halfway across the room, you get a little upset. It's my phone, right? It's mine. God says, my glory, don't you take it. Don't you go taking it and soil it and abuse it. It's mine. In Isaiah 60, verse 1, Arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. We know that part of the verse, right? For behold, the darkness shall cover the earth, and deep darkness the people. But the Lord will arise over you, and his glory will be seen upon you. The Gentiles shall come to your light, and kings to the brightness of your rising. What this is saying is this. God's glory will come upon his people and the unsaved will be drawn to it. They're not drawn to you. They're drawn to the glory of God on you. If anyone is drawn to you by what God has done, none of the glory goes to you. It all goes to him because it is his light that is on us that draws us. It is his light on us that draws other people. Whatever we have that's going on that's good for God, it's His light. It's not ours. If we had to shine our own light, it'd be pretty bad. (laughs) Romans 15, verse 15. Nevertheless, brethren, I have written more boldly to you on some points as reminding you because of the grace given to me by God that I might be a minister of Jesus Christ to the Gentiles, ministering to the gospel of God and the offering of the Gentiles might be acceptable, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. Therefore, I have reason to glorify in Christ Jesus and the things which pertain to God. For I will not dare to speak of any of those, those things which Christ has, has not accomplished through me in word and deed to make the Gentiles obedient in mighty signs and wonders by the power of the Spirit of God so that from Jerusalem and roundabout to Elycrium I have fully preached the gospel of Christ. Paul is not about 
to boast on what God has not done in him, nor is he going to boast about what God has done in him. He's going to boast on his God. And we ought to learn from his example in that. 1 Corinthians 1, verse 25, Because the foolishness of God is wiser than men. The foolishness of God is wiser than men. How can we ever become prideful about what we do when the best we can come up with is not as good as his foolishness? How can we possibly blag about anything? Because the foolishness of God is wiser than men. And the weakness of God is stronger than men. No matter what you accomplish, how much strength or how much wisdom it shows, God says, that's nothing. (laughs) That is nothing. I've created universes, galaxies, solar systems in an instant. No big deal. What have you done? Oh, you built a house. How nice. Look at that house. About 30 years, it's going to fall down. The universe is standing after billions of years. It's still functioning. The weakness of God is stronger than men. For you see your calling, brethren, that not many wise, according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called. But God has cho- chosen the foolish things of the world to put to shame the wise. Now, This is a humbling verse. How many believe you are called by God? How many believe that you are doing what God has called you to do? All right. Take a look at this again now. For you see your calling, brethren, that not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called. Who's he called? The foolish. foolish. How many of you are called? (laughs) Right? How many of you are called by God? Which, who are the ones that he calls? The foolish. <laughs> he says, now I'm going to show you. I can even use the foolish ones down here and do some great things. And we're out there bragging on ourselves. <laughs> For God has chosen the foolish things of the world to put to shame the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to put to shame the things that which are mighty. And the base things of the world, the things which are despised, God has chosen the base things of the world. How many are proud today, or, or glad anyway, glad today that you are one of the base things? <laughs> yeah, yeah, glory to God. And the base things of the world and the things which are despised, God has chosen. And the things which are not to bring to nothing the things that are. The things that are nothing are going to bring to nothing the things that are something, is what he's saying. We who are nothing will take what is something into nothing because of God. The people of the world, they think this is something, and God's going to say, I just used nothing and showed you up. That no flesh should glory in his presence, but of him you are are in Christ Jesus, who became for us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption, that as it is written, he who glories, let him glory in the Lord. Well, no wonder. (laughs) You sure can't glory in yourself, right? Absolutely. If we really understood that, there's absolutely no room for pride in the body of Christ at all. We got to get rid of it all. Because who am I? Who am I? Man, I'm nothing. But because God is in me, I'm something. Because God is in me, I am something. But only because God 
is in me. It's the only reason. Well, let's take a look at the main text we want to look at here today. We looked at it last week that Elisha was called to go out there and to anoint three people. The king of Syria, Jehu, and Elisha. Elisha was his replacement. How many of those did he go out there and anoint? One. He was one for three. If he was in baseball, he'd be doing great. One out of three is batting 333, which is good. That's a good average if you're in baseball. He's not playing baseball. God is not impressed with a 333 average. <laughs> he wants you batting 1,000. If he gives you something to do, he wants you to get it done. Elisha didn't do it. He didn't do the other two things. So, or Elijah didn't do it. Elisha did. He went up and he finished the other two. Now, he does not personally anoint Jehu, and it may just be that he didn't want to draw the attention to Jehu, so he sent one of his servants to go over there and to do it. But he got it done, and so he, uh, he went over to do that. We're going to see this call here. In verse 1, And Elisha the prophet called one of the sons of the prophets and said to him, Get yourself ready, take this flask of oil in your hand, and go to Ramoth Gilead. Now when you arrive at the place, look there for Jehu, the son of Jehoshaphat, the son of Nimshi, and go in and make him rise up from among his associates and take him to an inner room. Then take the flask of oil and pour it on his head and say, The Lord, thus says the Lord, I have anointed you king over Israel. Then open the door and flee and do not delay. So the young man, the servant of the prophet, went to Ramoth Gilead. And when he had arrived, there were the captains of the army sitting. He said, I have a message for you, commander. Jehu said, for which one of us? And he said, for you, commander. Then he arose and went into the house and he poured the oil on his head and said to him, thus says the Lord God of Israel, I have anointed you king over the people of the Lord over Israel. You shall strike down the house of Ahab, your master, that I may avenge the blood of my servants, the prophets, and the blood of all the servants of the Lord at the hand of Jezebel. For the whole house of Ahab shall perish, and I will cut off from Ahab all the males of Israel, in Israel, both bond and free. So I will make the house of Ahab like the house of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, and like the house of Basha, the son of Ahijah. The dog shall eat Jezebel on the plot of ground at Jezreel, and there shall, they shall, not, there shall be none to bury her. And he opened the door, and he fled. So apparently there's a little more that uh, Elisha had given him, and he, he says it all to this man, and he does exactly what Elisha says. He flees out the door. He runs. But he, the instructions are given. And the anointing is given to Jehu to go out there and to do this. Then Jehu came out to the servants of his master and said to, and one said to him, Is all well? Why did this madman come to you? <laughs> so you can see, kind of see the kind of people that Jehu hangs around. What do they think of the men of God? Madmen. This is a servant of Elisha. What did this madman come to you? And he said to him, You know the man and his babble. And now it was easier to say that, I guess, than the, the real thing. And they said, A lie. Tell us now. So he said, Thus and thus he spoke to me, saying, Thus says the Lord, I have anointed you king over Israel. Then each man hastened to fit, take his garment and put it under him. On top of the steps, and they blew trumpets, saying, Jehu is king. Don't know if they were doing that in a kidding way. We don't know how much, if, if Jehu gave him all of the word that he was supposed to do. But whatever it was, he goes on from here, and he sets out to accomplish the things that God says to do. Verse 17. We're going to jump down just a little bit. Now a watchman stood on the tower in Jezreel, and he saw the company of Jehu as he came and said, I see a company of men. And Jehoram said, Get a horseman and send him to meet them. 
and let him say, Is it peace? So the horsemen went to meet him, and they said, Thus says the king, Is it peace? And Jehu said, What have you to do with peace? Turn around and follow me. So the watchman reported, saying, The messenger went to them, but he's not coming back. Then he sent out a second horseman who came to them and said, Thus says the king, Is it peace? And Jehu answered, What have you to do with peace? Turn around and follow me. So the watchman reported, saying, He went up to them, and he is not coming back. And the driving is like the driving of Jehu, the son of Nimshi, for he drives furiously. Have you ever looked around and seen someone off in a distance and seen them walking and knew who it was by the way they walked? There's some unique things. Well, apparently it's that way with uh, these folks and horses. Uh, Certain people drive horses harder than others. And apparently Jehu had a reputation of driving horses in a certain way. And as they got closer, said, it looks like that's the way Jehu rides. He rides different than, the, than a lot of those others. He says he drives furiously. Jen, then uh, Joram said, make ready. And his chariot was made ready. Then Joram, king of Israel, and Ahaziah, king of Judah, went out, each in his chariot. And they went out to meet Jehu and meet him on the property of Naboth, the Jezreelite. Now it happened when Jehoram saw Jehu that he said, is it peace, Jehu? So he answered, what peace as long as the harlotries of your mother Jezebel and her witchcraft are so many. Then Jehoram, then Jehoram turned around and fled and said to Ahaziah, Treachery, Ahaziah. Now Jehu drew his bow with full strength and shot Jehoram between his arms, and the arrow came out at his heart, and he sank down in his chariot. Then Jehu said to Bidkar, his captain, Pick him up and throw him into the tract of the field of Naboth the Jezreelite. For remember, when you and I were riding together behind Ahab, his father, that the Lord laid this burden upon him. Surely I saw yesterday the blood of Naboth and the blood of his sons, says the Lord, and I will repay you in this plot, says the Lord. Now, therefore, take and throw him in the plot of ground according to the word of the Lord. But when Ahaziah, king of Judah, saw this, he fled by the road to Beth-Hagan. So Jehu pursued him, shot him also in a chariot. They shot him at the ascent of Gur, which is by Ebleum, in case you were wondering where that was. <laughs> then he fled to Megiddo and died there. And his servants carried him in the chariot to Jerusalem and buried him in his tomb with his fathers in the city of David. In the eleventh year of Jehoram, the son of Ahab, Ahaziah became king over Judah. Now when Jehu had, become, had come to Jezreel, Jezebel heard of it, and she put paint on her eyes and adorned her head and looked through the window. Now, there's a lot to get into here with all the different people that are being killed, all the different relationships that they had. And uh, we're not really trying to uh, get into all those details of this right now. We're just looking at the overall part of of this as far as what was going on with pride and how these folks are dealing with this. And the um, part of taking your own actions, the only things that you do, and amplifying them. So Jezebel comes to the tower and... You know, she gets it all made up and makes eyes at him. Then as Jehu entered at the gate, she said, Is it peace, Zimri, murderer of your master? Isn't it amazing how all these people talk about peace? Jehu has it right. You guys have nothing to do with peace. You can talk about peace, but you've got nothing to do with it. And he looked up at the window, or the window and said, Who is on my side? Who? So two or three eunuchs looked out at him, and then he said, Throw her down. So they threw her down, and some of her blood splattered on the wall and on the horses, and he trampled her underfoot. Now, there's a story there that we're not told. Who is on my side? And a couple of people looked at, we're on your side. This is a powerful lady in the kingdom. And they said, if you're on my side, throw her down. So they pick her up, and they throw her down. 
Now, if you get to the place where you can take this uh, older woman, powerful person in the kingdom, and someone you don't really know all that well down there at the bottom, says, uh, pick her up and throw her down. Okay. (laughs) But you just pick somebody up and throw them down. Uh, Apparently, she didn't treat everybody well. Don't know what she did. Like I said, that's a story we'll have to find out another time. I'm sure that there's someone in heaven who could tell the story. You're not going to get it from Jezebel. She's not going to tell you the story. Maybe the eunuchs might be in heaven and they can tell us the story. Don't know. But anyway, he says, throw her down. So they throw her down. And, you know, most people don't survive being thrown down out of a tower. Some of her blood splattered on the wall and on the horses. And he trampled her underfoot. All right. She's already dead. I mean, you fall from the tower, you hit the rocks, blood splatters all over the place. It's kind of gory. And Jehu doesn't just go away. He drives his horse in such a way as to go over her. All right, we're making a point, right? (laughs) And when he had gone in, he ate and drank. All right, we just had this, this whole thing go on there. You know, you just killed a couple of people. Um, we phoned this woman from the tower, trampled her underfoot. I'm hungry. <laughs> so he goes in and he eats and drinks. And he said, go now, see this accursed woman and bury her, for she was the king's daughter. So they went to bury her and they found no more of her than the skull and the feet and the palms of her hands. Then they came back and told him and he said, this is the word of the Lord, which he spoke by the servant Elijah, the Trishbite, saying, On the plot of ground of Israel, dogs shall eat the flesh of Jezebel, and the corpse of Jezebel shall be a refuse on the surface of the field, and the plot of Jezreel, so that they shall not say, Here lies Jezebel. This is important to note about Jehu. He knows the word. What we're going to find out later is what word he knows. But he knows this word, and he quotes it. He's got it right there at the tip of his tongue. What I think is interesting is he knew this was prophesied and he still felt bad and sent somebody back. If they would have found the body, would he have buried her? What does that tell you? That this man is more moved by emotions and feelings than he is by the word of God. And if you think that's a little harsh for judgment, you will see his life will carry it out. But you can see that right now. If the word of God says something is so, even if it makes you feel bad, you do what the word of God says. The word of God says on that plot of ground, that's what's going to happen. You stay there. You stay right there. Now, we can keep on reading here. And if you want to, you can go on back home and read some more of this. But uh, just for time's sake, in 2 Kings chapter 10, verse 1, we pick up through 11 that Jehu goes and he has all 70 sons of Ahab killed. They're all held up in a, in a city. And he goes, all right, y'all got a choice. I'm going to give you a choice here today. I'm just going to summarize this for you. Here's your choice. You can either pick from the 70 sons the best one, make him your king, and we go to war. And we'll see how you do. Or... You can kill all 70 of the sons and throw their heads over the wall and I go on. It's up to you. Whichever you want to do. You want to fight it out, pick one of the best one, 
he'll be the king. If not, kill them all and bring them to me and I'll let you go. And they uh, had a meeting. You know, what should we do? And I'm sure that the meeting did not include any of the 70 sons. That's my, my guess on this. They just had a town meeting and you guys, you stay out here. here. We're going to decide your fate. And they said, you know what? Let's just kill them. And so they killed all 70 sons, brought the heads out to Jehu, and Jehu was happy. All right, that's good. So we'll go on. So now we got the kings are, are killed. We got the sons killed. We got Jezebel killed. We're doing, this is a good day's work. I mean, this guy goes at it. If he is going to go after something for God, he goes at it, right? If he drives a horse, how does he drive it? Furiously. When God gives him a command, what's he do? He gets at it. Boy, if Elijah had anointed him sooner, all that stuff would have been taken care of. And imagine the people that these folks killed in the meantime who wouldn't have been killed if Elijah would have anointed him sooner. Because as soon as he gets anointed by, by Elisha, he gets busy. He gets after it. And short period of time, a lot of these people are gone. A lot of these evil people are gone. Well, in verse 12 and 14, we pick this one. He, uh, he goes over there, and this is, a, this is kind of amazing. I'm going to read one of the verses here for you. And Jehu met with the brothers of Ahaziah, king of Judah, and said, Who are you? Word gets around kind of fast, and um, you would think they would know by this time what's going on. Who are you? So they answered, We are the brothers of Ahaziah. We have come down to greet the sons of the king and the sons of the queen mother. In other words, we are the sons of Ahaziah and we are on Jezebel's side. What are you going to do about it? And Jehu says, ah, we'll kill y'all. He kills all 42 brothers. Dead, just like that. This is no big deal to Jehu. How many? 42? All right, we're going to get y'all. And right there, they're all dead. This is after lunch. <laughs> you know, you don't want to do this kind of stuff on an empty belly, right? Verse 15. Now, when he departed from there, he's not done yet. He met Jehonadab, the son of Rechab, coming to meet him. How many of y'all know who Jehonadab is? Well, I looked him up. And um, in case you were wondering, he is the son of Rechab. He tells us that right in the Bible. Uh, apparently, though, he is not a Jew. He himself is not a Jew. He was a supporter of Jehu. But he's not Jewish. He, um, he was uh, helpful for him in the elimination of the house of Ahab and in suppressing the worship of Baal. In the book of Jeremiah, he is called Jonadab. Apparently, he had some followers, and he prohibited his followers from drinking alcohol. If you're going to be one of his followers, no alcohol for you. And is credited for founding the Rechabites. He also commanded that they all live in tents instead of houses. So if you were one of his followers, you didn't have a house, you had a tent. So that doesn't help us out a whole lot. But uh, in Jeremiah 35, 6-19, you can find out that some of his followers are commended for adhering to his instructions and the promises of God. So anyway, that's who Jehonadab is. So it says, is your heart right as my heart is toward your heart? And Jehonadab answered, it is. 
Jehu said, If it is, give me your hand. So he gave him his hand and he took him up into his chariot. And he said, telling statement right here. Look at this. Come with me and see my zeal for the Lord. Come with me and see my zeal for the Lord. Be careful of people who are zealous for God, who amplify the works they do for God. That looks good. This goes for not just people who are generals. This goes for anyone. Because people who are in love with God are zealous about the relationship, not the works. Jehu is zealous about the works. Too many people in the body of Christ are zealous for the things they have done for God. They are not as zealous for the relationship. Something that Jesus said to his disciples when they came back and they were all excited because even the demons are subject to us. And what does Jesus tell them? Don't be glad. Don't be excited. Because the devils are subject to you. But that your names are written in the book of life. In other words, it's this way. Don't be zealous on the works. Be zealous for the relationship. What you ought to be glad about is that you have a relationship with God. Not that you are doing things for him. Another time, Jesus calls the sheep and the goats. And to the goats, he says, depart from me. I never knew you. you. There's no relationship. And the goats will say to him, but we cast out demons in your name. We heal people in your name. And he still says, depart from me. I never knew you. Too many ministers, too many people in the body of Christ are zealous for what they do for God, not for their relationship. It is a sign of a prideful person. God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. When you got the story of the sheep and the goats coming before the throne, which one was resisted? The people who focused on their works. Which ones were given the grace? The ones who focus on the relationship. It's important to understand that. It's huge to understand that. Because I'll tell you what, folks, there's a lot of Christians out there that are zealous for the work they are doing for God, zealous for the service they are doing for God. And God says, I don't know you. I don't know you. We're going to see some things about Jehu here. Come with me and see my zeal for the Lord. So they had him ride in his chariot. When he came to Samaria, he killed all who remained in Ahab in Samaria till he had destroyed them, according to the word of the Lord, which he spoke to Elijah. One thing I want you to notice about Jehu, there is no fear with this man. Does he ever, do you ever see anything in him that says, you know, they're getting wise to me what I'm doing. When I come on down there, they know who I'm coming after. They're probably going to be set up. He doesn't care. He walks right on in. I'm here to kill all the descendants of Ahab. I'm going to get every single one of them. Don't get in my way. And people didn't. But he was fearless. 
He did what God called him to do fearlessly. So often, folks, we look at how people do what God called them to do. We look at their zeal. We look at how fearless they are. But it doesn't tell us what's going on on the inside. There are many people who serve God with everything they have. Work day and night. But there's no love of God on the inside of them. There's no character. There's no fruit. The Word of God never says, by your works, by their works you shall know them. It says what? By their fruit. Fruit comes from character. comes from the love of God on the inside. Works do not. Verse 18. Then Jehu gathered all the people together and said to them, Ahab served Baal a little. Jehu will serve him much. Now therefore call to me all the prophets of Baal, all his servants and all his priests. Let no one be missing. For I have a great sacrifice for Baal. Whoever is missing shall not live. (laughs) The guy means what he says, right? I mean, at this point you're saying this guy kills people for fun. And if he says, I'm not going to live, if I'm not there, I don't care what I got going on. I am canceling it. I have got to be there because this guy means business. He's going to kill me. Let no one be missing. No one be missing. But Jehu acted deceptively with the intent of destroying the worshipers of Baal. And Jehu said, proclaim a solemn assembly for Baal. So they proclaimed it. Now, there's a lot of debate, you know, should they have done this? Should Should he have been deceptive? It, in, in doing such a thing to, to get everybody together. And the Word of God never addresses it. Never addresses it. There are a few times where deception is used in the Word of God in a positive way. There are a few times that it was used in a, in a positive way. I'll give you a couple of them. Elisha comes out to the army that had surrounded the city of Dothan. And he prayed to the Lord to blind their eyes, which is to deceive them and he says we're here to find elisha he says tell you what i'll take you to the one that you you seek he never says i'll take you to elisha he says i'll take you to the one that you seek was he honest come on think about it was he honest was there a little bit of deception going on yeah a little bit but were they honest people no he says, look, I'm going to take you to the one you seek. Now, they didn't mean any ill harm to them. Brought them into the city of Samaria. Fed them. Sent them on home. And, of course, they didn't treat very well. There's a few other examples you can look at in, in there as well. But whatever it is, Jehu wants to get, he, he wants to get this thing taken care of today. I mean, before this week is out, we want everybody dead who's supposed to be dead. And everybody doing what they're supposed to be doing. He does not want this to go. If, they're, if God wants them dead, I want them dead. And he's not going after other people. He's only going after the people that God wants dead. That's it. He's not using it as an excuse to kill people that uh, did him wrong. He is only going after the people that God told him to go after. That's it. And Jehu said, proclaim a solemn assembly for Baal. So they proclaimed it. And Jehu sent throughout all Israel and all the worshipers of Baal came. So there was not a man left who did not come. So they came into the temple of Baal. The temple of Baal was full from one end to the other. And he said to the one in charge of the wardrobe, who was it that had that, that joke about things? 
the government was bragging about how many people they got into health care. You know, 7 million. And there, there's some comedian who comes on at nighttime. It's not one that I watched, but I saw the little statement. It says, and, uh, it says, yeah, it's amazing how many people you can get to sign up for something. When you make it mandatory, you penalize them if they don't do it. <laughs> you listed off all the reasons that will happen if you don't do it. <laughs> it was just kind of, it's kind of funny. Yeah, the place is full. Why? Because if you're not here, you die. So the place is full. You can fill up places when you do that kind of thing. So he said, uh, so they came to the temple of Baal, and the temple of Baal was full from one end to the other. And he said to the one in charge of the wardrobe, bring out vestments for all the worshipers of Baal. So he brought out vestments for them. I mean, we're, we're really doing this up. Then Jehu and Jehonadab, the son of Rechab, went into the temple of Baal and said to the worshipers of Baal, search and see that no one, that none, no servants of the Lord are here with you, but only the worshipers of Baal. I'm not going to do this. I don't want to waste my time doing it. I'm not going to go through here. I may not even know them all. You all look around. You look to your left. You look to your right. You look around. You find out, is there a worshiper of God here? If there are, get them out. We don't want to mess this thing up. We don't want to have any of the enemy in. We only want the worshipers of Baal. That's it. It's kind of like if you were at the Democrat National Convention and they said, look around, make sure there are no Republicans in the room. If you're at the Republican National Convention, they said, look around, make sure there are no Democrats in the room. That's what they're doing, looking around. I, you're a Democrat. You're a Republican. Get, get out of here. That's what they're doing. They're all looking around. They're using all the people that are there. We want to find out. There's only worshipers of Baal. Because Jehu doesn't want to kill them. I don't know why they would be in here, but Jehu wants to make sure. You make sure there's no worshipers of God. Only worshipers of Baal need to be in this room right now. That's it. You guys search and see. So they went in to offer sacrifices and burn offerings. Now Jehu had appointed for himself 80 men on the outside. And he said, If any of the men whom I have brought into your hands escapes... Whoever lets him escape, it shall be his life for the life of the other. He says, I brought all these guys here to you. It's your job to kill them. I've been killing a bunch. I want to let you guys have some of the fun too. But if any of you slip up, any of you, I can't be dressed in all my war stuff right now. I got to head this thing up. So I'm delegating it to you. You all got your swords on. You got your spears. You got your shields. Whatever it is you need, you have it there. And you better have enough. Because I want you to... See all those guys? Every one of them needs to be dead. 80 guys he brought into this. That's it. If you let one of them get by, any of them get by you, then you're dead. Now what happened as soon as he made an end of the offering, burnt offering, he, didn't, he went through the whole ceremony. The Jehu said to the guard and to the captains, go in and kill them. Let no one come out. And they killed them with the edge of the sword. Then the guards and the officers threw them out and went into the inner room of the temple of Baal. And they brought the sacred pillars out of the temple of Baal and burned them. And they broke down the sacred pillar of Baal and they tore down the temple of Baal and made it a refuse dump to this day. Then Jehu destroyed Baal from Israel. Jezebel brought it in. Jehu took it out. He took it out with fanfare. He did everything he could. We want to make sure we get them all. This day, Baal will be done. It survived Elijah. And he did a pretty good job on it. it survived him. Jehu said, it's not getting by me. We're going to knock it all out. 
Verse 29, however, Jehu did not turn away from the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, who had made Israel sin, that is, from the golden calves that were at Bethel and Dan. And the Lord said to Jehu, because you have done well in doing what is right in my sight and have done to the house of Ahab all that was in my heart, your son shall sit on the throne of Israel to the fourth generation. But Jehu took no heed to walk in the law of the Lord God of Israel with all his heart, for he did not depart from the sin of Jeroboam, who had made Israel sin. I want you to understand something really key about this story with Jehu, and you will see it pan out with the people today. There are many folks who call themselves ministers of God, prophets and prophetesses. People who say they go on to do the things of God, and they know parts of the word so well they quote it. They do it with everything in them. They put their entire self into fulfilling those things. But 201, you will find this. They do not know the whole word. They have picked out parts of the word and they are very zealous for those parts. But they do not know the whole of the word, nor do they teach it, nor do they live it. Jehu knew the parts of the word that had to do with judgment, that had to do with execution, bringing about the will of God to destroy the people who did not do certain things. But he did not know all the word of God. The word of God says, you shall not make any graven image before me. What are the golden calves? The word of God is very clear about what the feast days are and who the priests will be. But he upheld the sins of Jeroboam, which was to make priests of all people. Jehu was very zealous for God for those things, but not all things. Folks, it is imperative that when we are all called into ministry, we are all called to be ministers of God. It is imperative that we know the whole word. That we know it all. I don't know it all yet. That's why we're still learning we're still digging in. We're still finding out. What does the Word of God teach? It's imperative. But Jehu took no heed to walk in the law of the Lord God of Israel with all his heart. For he did not depart from the sins of Jeroboam who made Israel sin. There's a whole bunch that Jehu walked in. There's some he did not. Because of what he did not walk in. His house was never established forever. I want to go over one other story here with you. Ezekiel 28, verse 12. Son of man, take up a lamentation for the king of Tyre and say to him, Thus says the Lord God, You were the seal of perfection, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. You were in Eden. Was the king of Tyre in Eden? Who was in Eden? Adam, Eve, God, and Satan. You were in Eden. Of those Four, who's he talking about? He's talking about Satan. We have left, this is a prophecy that left the king of Tyre, the prince of Tyre, and had gone on to talk about the force behind Tyre, which was Satan. You were the seal of perfection, full of wisdom, and perfect in beauty. 
You were in Eden, the garden of God. Every precious stone was your covering, the, star, the sardis, topaz, and diamond, beryl, onyx, jasper, sapphire, turquoise, emerald with gold. The workmanship of your timbrels and pipes was prepared for you on the day you were created. But he was created. You were the anointed cherub who covers. He had an anointing on him. A ministry. A job to do, which was to cover I established you. You were on the holy mountain of God. You walked back and forth in the midst of the fiery stones. He was the anointed cherub who covers. Most people see this as he was the worship leader. Because worship covers. You were perfect in your ways from the days you were created till iniquity was found in you. By the abundance of your trading, you became filled with violence within and you sinned. Therefore, I cast you as a profane thing out of the mountain of God and I destroyed you, O covering cherub. From the midst of the fiery stones, your heart was lifted up because of your beauty. You corrupted your wisdom for the sake of your splendor. You can corrupt what God has given you, which was perfect. Get that. You can corrupt what God has given you as perfect. You corrupted your wisdom for the sake of your splendor. I cast you to the ground. I laid you before kings that they may gaze at you. You defiled your, your sanctuaries by the multitude of your iniquities, by the iniquity of your trading. Therefore, I brought fire from your midst. It devoured you, and, it, and, it, and I turned you to ashes upon the earth in the sight of all who saw you. All who knew you among the peoples are astonished at you. You have become a horror and shall be, and shall be no more forever. There are many people in the body of Christ who have been given something by God and it was perfect when they gave it to them. And they corrupted it. And we look at what is left and we say, why did God do this? He was the anointed cherub who covered. He was perfect in all his ways, perfect in his beauty, perfect in his wisdom, until he corrupted that wisdom, until he corrupted that anointing. And how did he corrupt it? And Isaiah, I didn't write this in your outline, but you can put it in there if you want to. Isaiah 14, verse 12. Isaiah chapter 14, verse 12 through 17. How you are fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning. How you are cut down to the ground. You are weak, you who weakened the nations. Just a side note on this. If you ever wonder where demon spirits came from, demon spirits are not fallen angels. Fallen angels have a body. They cannot possess one. Satan brought the world that was here at that time, the nations, he brought them into rebellion with him. And the demon spirits come from that population of men that was on the face of this earth because they are disembodied spirits and they populate the kingdom of, of hell. We've covered that much more in, in other places. Just a side note, if you're wondering who weakened the nations, what nations? When he fell, this, this earth was filled with people. For you have said in your heart... Remember, how does uh, pride come in? comes in as a thought. You meditate on it. It gets down into your heart. It affects your actions and influences your talk. For you have said in your heart, I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will also sit on the mount of the congregation on the farthest side of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the Most High. Yet you shall be brought down to Sheol, to the lowest depth of the pit. Those who see you will gaze at you and consider you saying, Is this the man who made the earth tremble, who shook the kingdoms, who made the world as a wilderness and destroyed its cities, who did not open the house of its 
prisoners. He became something very far from what he was. I will. He was filled with pride. He began to think, I am this, I am that. I may have this wonderful ministry, but I am not God. And there are things that are withheld from me. I need to be involved in all those because I am perfect in my beauty. I am perfect in my wisdom. And he began to think on these things until he ascended himself and pride pulled him down from what was perfect. What was perfect. Here's the damage. We find ourselves trying to prove to others a number of times. When we get into pride, folks, damage comes to us because of a number of things. Where We find ourselves trying to prove things to other people. That's why we amplify the things that we are doing. That's why we're always pro- promoting from the housetops, wherever we can. Look at what I have done. Look at what God has done through me. Look at what God has done for me. We're trying to get people's attention. Here's the damage. We find ourselves trying to prove to others that first off, God loves me. People in pride are trying to prove that God loves them. Why? Look at what all God has done. Look at the miracle God did for me. Did God do anything like that for you? (laughs) He did it for me. Look at what God spoke to me and told me. Has he spoken anything to you? He did to me. I'm trying to prove to people. God loves me. God loves me. God loves me more than you do. Or then he loves you. God loves me more than you. Look and begin to, to show all the things that are going on in their life. This is people in pride. God works through me. God works through me. Look at all I have done for God. What have you done? What have you done? When Paul would preach different cities, people would come in and they would put Paul down. One of the times Paul began to write a letter to them and he said, do people say this about me? Do people say this about themselves? Let me tell you what, if I wanted to be in there and I wanted to brag, I could brag. I could tell you some things. But that's not what we're here to do. People in pride want to prove that God loves me, that God works through me. And that God sees me as special. I'm special to God. I am unique. You need to treat me better. Because God treats me better. They begin to elevate themselves. They begin to amplify whatever it is they can to show. Look who I am. number of people in the Bible who have done this. number of people who rebelled against Moses. What did they say about Moses? Who are you? And who, why is it that we're nothing? We are something. And we think that we ought to be in these positions and you're keeping us from it. What does Moses do? Have at it. <laughs> let's, let's see who God chooses. Tell you what. You all want to do that ministry that God hasn't called you to? Tell you what. Tomorrow, you all do that ministry. And let's see what God says. Good. This is our opportunity. So they do that ministry. What does God do? They are gone. Gone. They are, they are burned. By, one of my favorite quotes, Star Trek, first, first movie they just did with this new set. There's a little, little uh, Chekhov. He's over there on the, on the ship. I love his voice. The new Chekhov. And not the old Chekhov. The new Chekhov. I, I love his voice. He's over there. And he's monitoring all this stuff. He is, no matter what he does, this man is excited. 
I don't care what he does. Whatever he's doing, if he makes a left turn, I made a left turn, sir! <laughs> it's done! <laughs> he's just excited. I, just, I love his enthusiasm. But, you know, they had this thing where they were shooting on down into the, get this drill and to get this drill to, to be, be stopped. And there was like a, three or four of them that were going on down. And, you know, you have the two stars and then the other people. And you all know what happens in Star Trek when you don't have a name and you're one of the other people. I think for a while it was if you wore a red suit. That was an indicator. You are, you're going to die. You're going to die. It's, you know, we don't have a name for you. We don't know who you are. And you have a red suit on. You're going to die. We're going on a away mission. You don't have to worry about who's going to die in Star Trek. People are going to die. The people you don't know, the people wearing the red suit, they're going to die. They're going to die. So anyway, they're going on down there, and, and Chuck off is watching them, and, and the one guy, he got kind of high on the, on the flight going down. And he's all excited because he is just really moving. And he didn't pop his chute when he should. And he got actually into a, a place he shouldn't have been, and there was, it was really hot and Nasty stuff's going on. And he just evaporated. And Chekhov goes around, he's gone, sir! (laughs) (laughs) He's gone! Yeah, he's gone. That's it. Hmm. Yeah, back over here. Three things we find ourselves trying to prove. God loves me. God works through me. God sees me as special. If we leave this developed, here's where this is the problem. This is a huge problem. It already is a problem, but this is where you really begin to see it. If, we, if left to develop, if this attitude is left to develop in a believer, we're not talking about the unsaved, we're talking about believers, we look to prove how unique our call, anointing, and our ministry is, leaving us open to the seeds of unique doctrine or ministry. If you ever wonder how does someone take on such a unique doctrine and begin to promote this unique doctrine that no one else has ever taught before. And this is our whole ministry now. This is exactly how it happens. Because pride gets in, they begin to amplify all the things that they do. They begin to see themselves that God loves me more than he loves others. God works through me more than he works through others. God sees me as special. And since I am special, God has given me a unique revelation He has never given to anyone before. And you need to go out and proclaim this revelation among all the people. And folks will come up and try and say, but that's wrong. That's not in the word of God. That's not that's not consistent. That's not right. And what do they do? Get behind me, Satan. You are not going to. And they'll they'll put them down. Then anyone who says anything about that ministry, about being bad, They begin to pull people into a direction. We are being persecuted. We are being persecuted from the enemy because this is a unique doctrine that God has poured out to us because of where we are. God has given it to me because of how he sees me. And the people swallow it. Why? Because the ground has been tilled and the seeds of unique ministry and unique doctrine are sowed into them. And they accept it. How hard is it to pull those people back? They think they're in the kingdom of God. And they aren't. Understand this. No matter how good we are in what we do for God. 
And I'll tell you what, there's been a lot of people who have come and gone. And I bet you many of them think, man, I am a good prophet. I am a good pastor. I am a good apostle. I am a good teacher. I am a good missionary. I am a good usher. I am a good whatever it is that they do. I'm a good worship leader. I'm a good um, whatever, you name it. Whatever, I am good. I am really good at this. I mean, the anointing of God comes on me. I just feel the anointing of God come. Oh, man, it is something else. James chapter 1, verse 9. Let the lowly brother glory in his exaltation, but the rich in his humiliation, because as a flower of the field, he will pass away. No matter how good you are, you will die and go on. And that ministry will be picked up by someone else. For no sooner has the sun risen with a burning heat than it withers the grass, its flower falls, and its beauty appearance perishes. So the man also will fade away in his pursuits. You can begin to think, I am so unique. I am so good at what I do for God. And God says, in a minute, you're going to be gone. You are going to be gone. Someone else is going to take your place. One more scripture. Romans chapter 12, verse 1. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is the good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Very familiar scripture to us. Verse 3. For I say, through the grace given to me, to everyone who is among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think soberly, as God has dealt to each one a measure of faith. For as we have many members in one body, but all members do not have the same function, so we being many are one body in Christ and individually members of one another. Having then gifts differing according to the grace that is given to us, let us use them. If prophecy, let us prophesy in proportion to our faith. And he goes on and talks about the different ministries there. But he says, Do not think more highly of yourself than you ought to think. In what we're looking at here, if you get caught up in pride, you get off in the ditch on the one side where you think too highly of yourself. If you get caught up in false humility, you go on the other side of the ditch and you think less than you ought to think of yourself. Both are bad. He says here, not he doesn't stop at don't think highly of yourself. He says don't think more highly of yourself than what? Than you ought there's a degree that you ought to think that's healthy for you to think highly of yourself. You can think, you know what? God has done some things. And I'm not on a ditch where I'm thinking too little. I'm not in a ditch where I'm thinking too much. I'm right there where, where God is. If, here's how you tell if you are where you ought to be. And that's what he goes on with the rest of the scriptures. If you can look at other people in the body of Christ and enjoy what they bring and and step aside when someone else has an anointing to to do what you what they're doing then you think where you ought to be thinking if you're not threatened by other people who come along because they do the same, a similar thing to you glory to God look at that anointing working in them look at the people that are ministered in that person right there that's good that's good because your goal is the good of the body that's how you tell a person who is caught up in pride is no longer for the good of the body they are good for that part of the body they operate in they're good for themselves. A person who is on the other side, in the other ditch, is thinking, it's only good if everyone else is made to, to be edified and built up, and I am not. And that's wrong. That's wrong. We are not to think more highly of ourselves 
or to think more highly of ourselves is damaging. Don't do it. Don't think more highly. Think, think what you ought to think, but don't think more highly. So is to think too lowly, for then we do nothing. If you think too lowly of yourself, you do nothing, or less than we are called to do. Both are, are areas that Satan wants to try and do. If he can get you to think less of yourself than you should, he gets you from doing anything. If he can get you to think you more, more highly than you ought to think of yourself, then he gets you to do things wrong. Put this in your outline. Think soberly, rightly or balanced, and function in your calling regardless of the recognition of those around. Regardless of whether people recognize you or not. Don't worry about it. Do what God has called you to do. Think soberly about it. Understand, well, God, I'm walking in this strength of your anointing. I could be walking in more. I'm going to pursue that more. I'm going to go after this more. Look at so-and-so over there. They're, they're doing all right. If you cannot look at any other person in your field and see the good that they do, you are probably operating in pride. Be careful. Be careful of it. If you are a secretary and you answer phones, take messages, type letters, file things, Take care of the order in the office. And every time you walk into another office, all you see is disorder and problems. Boy, if I was here, I'd fix that. Boy, if I was here, I'd take care of that. Yeah, if I, they need me. You are probably a person in pride. Because no one else can do what you do as well as you. If you are a doctor or surgeon, and you look at somebody else's surgery they did, oh, that person's horrible. Can't believe they did. Who did this? Ah, oh, yeah, he's he's a hack. He's he's no good. Can't believe. Don't go to him again. Please tell your friends. No, don't go to him. He's he's a hack. He's just, I mean, it's, it's surprising that anybody even survives this. Why? That person's caught up in pride. No, you should be able to enjoy what other people do, and the the good that God has done through them. Should be able to, because we are called to be a body of Christ, which means we grow as what every joint supplies brings it. If one joint calls for all the attention, what happens to the health of the body? It's wrong. Pride will mess us up there. Jehu had a lot of things going on. And he sure could have been a whole lot better than he was. But you can see the seeds from his words, from the things that he had going on. You can see the seeds and why he went the way that he did. Don't follow after Jehu. Follow after God. Look at the people that are around you, especially the ones who do something similar to what you do. And look at all the ways that you can help them to grow. Look at all the ways that you can, you can make things go better. We live here in Philadelphia. Philadelphia is a football town. It's football 12 months out of the year here. They may only play a couple of months, but it's football 12 months out of the year here. They're always writing articles. They wrote an article I happened to read about an Eagles player that they had signed as a free agent this year. His name was Jenkins. He's a safety. Apparently, he's uh, not the, the highest free agent on the market. Not one, was not one of the best, but he's the one the Eagles went after, and they signed him, and they brought him on in. And they did an article about him and another guy that they had drafted last year. His name is Earl Wolf. Earl Wolf is a rookie, got hurt last year, couldn't finish out the season. But he showed some great promise. He wrote this article about Jenkins and about the things he was doing in camp, and how he was taking notes, and how he was processing all the information, and filing it, and learning it, and so forth. 
And it talked about how he was taking Eric Wolf under his, under his care and helping him to become the safety that he could become. Teaching him. This is how you study. This is how you go about it. Helping him become better. Because you see, when you have a team concept, then whoever's on the field, if they're operating at their best, then we function better. There's a story a number of years ago. I think it was Brett Farr who was asked to mentor a quarterback that they had taken in a draft. And he didn't see it as his job. Why should I train up my replacement? I want to play here for a long time. That's not a good idea, is it? Because there's too many people in the body of Christ, we have that mentality. Other people are a threat. We don't see them as a help in the body. Eventually, folks, we, if the Lord tarries, we're going to go. Someone else is going to stand in and do what you do. Are you prepared to train them? Are you prepared to help them? Are you prepared to pass on everything that you can? Or are you too busy amplifying to everyone all your works, all your deeds, to show them how good you are? Would you all stand up with me? Father, I thank you for the help that you give us. You always are here to help us. You can help us, Father, to think soberly about our ministry what you've called us to, that we see it rightly. We don't think any more highly of ourselves than we ought to think. We don't look on others with disdain or low. But, Father, we look at them to help them become even better. Because as they become better, the body of Christ becomes better. And we are not here on this earth to make ourselves excel. We are here to make the body of Christ excel. Help us always to keep that in mind. We need to spot those folks that are amplifying themselves a little too much and not yield ourselves to the things that they teach. For you gave us, Father, signs to see, warning signs. We need to heed them. Thank you for the way that you are developing us, growing us, the way that you help us to pass that on to others. We give you the praise and the glory for it. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. We have some praise reports here this morning. God has been working. If you did not get a praise report in, and God has been working, doing something in your life, we want to hear what it is that you got. So uh, if you need a uh, slip of paper to write it on, raise your hand up, and Ray will get that over there for you. one's from Sharon. She says, I thank God for my eldest sister visiting with us today, and we welcome you. (laughs) She's here from Trinidad. Um, She had a lot to do with raising Sharon when she was a child, so welcome. Hope you enjoy your visit here. Um, Ricky has a praise report. He got a new car, praise God, and where did he go off to? (laughs) Congratulations, he got a new car. Um, Tony has a praise report. She says she's been talking to her neighbor about the Lord, so God's opening up opportunities there, which we should be looking for always. Um, Ray has a praise report. He said uh, after fighting an illness, 
Um, he, was, he had dizziness, weakness, and lethargy. He says, I have been infused with renewed energy and purpose. He thanks God for our prayers and that the Lord hears them. Amen. And Ethel, let me just, if you have not heard yet, um, Ethel's godson, Kai, had, he and his wife, Monique, had their baby this week on Thursday. And her, his name is uh, Carter Gale. Um, Gale, named after his mother, who passed away many years ago. Um, he arrived on Thursday at 5.19 p.m., and Ethel was able to be there to actually witness the birth and everything. So I will tell you this. Do not call her grandmom. She's not grandmom. She's godmom Ethel. So I thank you for that. She's very excited. Thank you. Um, and it was kind of neat for us, too, because we knew Kai when he was just a baby, like 10 years old even, and now he's a proud daddy. Uh, Jolly Mercy have one. says, thank God for... Our new respite son? From where is that? Okay, I don't know. From someplace else. <laughs> I cannot say that. <laughs> um, he'll be with you for a month? Okay, great. Praise God. Hallelujah. Well, welcome. Um, and I, you know, I wanted to share this. Pastor was, as he was talking today, there's so many things that. Um, you know, I guess because we talk so much about these issues, but when you look at people who are in pride, it starts with a deception. You know, it starts with just that little seed of deception. And, you know, you're seeing this growing more and more and more and more. And that's why, you know, I put a post up on Facebook this week, and not too many people commented on it, but I am so thankful that we have a pastor who teaches line upon line and teaches you how to appropriate those things to your life. It is so important. It's not, it's not, church should not be where you just come in and you hear a message and you go home for the week. It's supposed to be about teaching you how to live the calling that God's placed on your life every day. Because we're all part of the body. We all have our own function within that body. We all have our own race to run. And we need to be doing that according to Scripture. And so when we come in here, we're supposed to be taught how to live, how to, to um, even recognize these things in, in other ministries. You know, unfortunately, we live in a day when a lot of people want to hear the messages that are being taught, such as the hyper-grace, the hyper-prosperity. That hyper-grace message can kill I'm going to warn you straight out, it can kill because it separates you from the call that God has as a believer. You know, we, we need to be, when I look at, when I think of that word repent, you know, we have to be able to repent before God. Repenting means we're always changing. We're always becoming more and more like him. It's not what we're supposed to do, become more and more like Jesus. And unless, I love, we've been listening to Brother Keith Moore talking, is it Keith we're listening to? Yeah, he's talking about becoming more like Jesus by becoming more of a disciple. And, um, you know, I love what he does. He says, turn to your neighbor and tell them you need to change. <laughs> like a lot. <laughs> and then turn to the other neighbor and go, I know. <laughs> we need to change. Until you can hold a mirror up in front of your face and say, I am 100% like Jesus, we all need to be changing. We all need to be repenting. We all need to be helping each other. Like Pastor said, even just seeing those gifts. Sometimes it's up to us to see gifts in other people because, you know, maybe they don't, maybe they haven't been, um, what's the word I'm thinking of, Lord? They have a low self-esteem. Or maybe they haven't even just been looking. 
And so sometimes it's good to, to notice that somebody has a gift, you know, and to encourage them in that gift. Um, like I know somebody sitting here today who has a gift of worship. It may not be to worship on the team, but they've got songs in them that need to come out. Songs birthed by experiences. Songs in them that are birthed on the fact that, you know, God, when nobody else was there, you were there for me. And Nancy, I'm thinking of you. You've got a gift of worship inside of you. And you need to start letting those songs come out. And I'm seeing not just songs, but dances. Dances accompanied with those songs. I don't know if that's something that you've ever thought of, but I see you doing that. I've seen you doing that a lot. So think about that, you know, and, and don't just think about that, but let the Lord lead you and bring those songs out. You know, there's others that they've got gifts in them. We've got to encourage them to bring them on out. Okay? And there's some that even have prophetic songs in them, but they've been a little afraid or intimidated to bring them out. And yet God says we need them. Why? The body needs them. And Vanessa, I've talked to you before about that. You've got songs inside of you. Some of them are prophetic songs that when you sit at home and practice, they're going to just start coming forth. You need to expect them. I've seen them for years. They're in there. (laughs) We need them to come on out. Come on out. Amen. So let's get with the rest of the program. Let's get with what God's doing for us. Be aware of the places that maybe even inside yourself there might be some pride. You know, I always go back. When I hear pastor teach on these things, I go, okay, Holy Ghost, this is my life. Here, here, here. What do I need to change? Where is pride in my life? And, and I'm going to, even in my attitude towards Scripture, I could sense it even this morning as pastor was reading through some of the Scriptures. like, oh, you know, this, is, this isn't exciting. I want to run around the church stuff. But it's necessary. How do I know it's necessary? Because it's in there. You know, what is my attitude even towards Scripture? Do I act sometimes like, well, Lord, I know it all. Well, Lord, this doesn't apply to me. That's pride. That's pride. We need to recognize these things for what they are. So I'm thankful, Pastor, for your teaching. I appreciate it. And I just want to say happy Father's Day to all of you out there. And I hope we go and enjoy a good daddy-dog day. (laughs) Thank you. Two prayer requests. Let's all stand up and we can pray for these. Okay. Remember Brian, he went over to the Philippines, got married, they have a baby. Baby is in the hospital. So uh, if you're on Facebook and you, you see some of the, the posts that are up on there, that's who we, we speak about there. So we'll be praying for them. Uh, uh, Ray said a prayer for... Um, for, we're praying for Angela. She continues to believe for healing, for a lingering bronchitis. Hmm, that's uh, been lingering for a little while there. And um, uh, Tony, the new job is to it's supposed to start this week, and the uh, there's something else about the apartment. <laughs> 